Hey everyone, today's guest is the brilliant and lovely Minnie Driver. I absolutely adore Minnie, and after catching up, I so regretted the years that have passed since we last spoke. We talk about everything, including bad relationships, great relationships, and why I should learn to surf. I especially loved hearing the incredible story of how she met the love of her life while running from the law. Later in the episode, April and I talk with a listener whose partner's frequent and unexpected outbursts of anger have her questioning the their relationship. One last thing, Minnie has a great podcast with a title that makes me smile just like she does. It's called Mini Questions with Minnie Driver and I think you'll really love it. Okay, now here she is, Minnie Driver. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Hi, darling. Thank you so much for doing this. I can't thank you enough for having me, honestly. It's lovely to see you, you look just the same. <laughs> and it's got to be. I was trying to work out when we made that film together because Henry was tiny. And I think you were pregnant. I was pregnant. It was 2012. And Minnie, I want to tell you my first impressions of you. I remember you coming on to set, I think maybe for just initially a wardrobe fitting. And I remember like your long legs. And I think you were wearing like tall brown boots. You were beyond glamorous and gorgeous. And and then getting to act with you. You're just marvelous, Minnie. Oh, you're so kind. I felt exactly the same way. It was an absolute treat. It was so fun making that film. For our listeners, I met Minnie in 2012 on a film called I Give It a Year, which we shot in London. And I was five months pregnant and I was starting to show. I was really worried. You look so cute. I was worried about you. I was like, my God, I wouldn't want to. Like, I think you had to do like a little bit of rolling around in your knickers type thing. And you look very hot. But Yeah, an aggressive threesome scene. Yeah, I mean, not what you want to do when you're five months pregnant. Well, I suppose. My tits look huge, though. They looked enormous. Yeah, but fantastic enormous. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Teitelbaum plus pregnancy. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was. that was a very, very fun shoot. Very fun. What's so funny is that recently I get sent that charade scene at least twice a week from different people because I do think it is one of the funniest scenes in a film ever. I will I will die on that hill. Like there's not much that's funnier of Rafe's ball just being hilarious. Our cast was just incredible. It was really, really, really good. Jason Fleming, you, Simon Baker. Amazing. Worth watching. But when I think about you and my experience with you, and I was pregnant for the first time at 35, which I guess is like geriatric pregnancy. I think that's what they call it. Yeah. But you told me the story of giving birth to Henry, which for a first time person experiencing pregnancy, you're fascinated by every story you hear. Because it's the terrible thing when you're pregnant, people feel the need to come up and tell you they're like terrible stories about their pregnancies or their births. And I suddenly feel like, golly, I might have scared you just because I did, you know, I did give birth to 
you know, my baby was the size of a three-month-old. Here's what I remember from your story. You can tell me how accurate it is. <laughs> I remember, like, you wanted to do a home birth. I did. Like, 48 hours of labor. Mm-hmm. And then, like... 68 stitches. You're completely correct. Because I gave birth to a small, beautiful dinosaur. I don't know how any woman can naturally give birth to a 10 pound baby, but I did. So it was, it was two and a half days of labor. I was trying to have them at home and I was in a tank of water and trying and trying and trying. And then eventually after two and a half days, my midwife said, we're a bit stuck and you're getting incredibly tired. And obviously that meant that she was incredibly tired. She really wanted to go home and have a cup of tea. So she said, I think we've had to go to the hospital. So we went to the hospital. I do remember that part of the story as well. You were like resistant. You were determined to have a home birth. Determined to have a home birth. And I had the candles and the water. And I remember my sister who was also, she was eight months pregnant at the time with her own child. And she wandered into my room as I was there like keening and lowing like a cow in the tank of water. And my sister walked into all the candles and the water and the whole thing. And she was like, oh, my God, are we having a seance or are we having a bloody baby? <laughs> and I just couldn't get him out. And so when we got to the hospital and my lovely, I was like, am I going to have to have a C-section? And my doctor was like, yeah, do you know what? If, if we have to do that, then we'll do that. But why don't we try and give you some pain relief because you're exhausted? And they gave me an epidural and an hour and a half later, Henry was born. But I did. I had 43 internal stitches and I remember as he was stitching me up which took two hours I remember shouting at him I was like you better stitch me up like a Prada handbag it better be really nice down there it better be pretty he was just I mean honestly at the time when you told me the story I didn't know that there was potentially enough room yeah I think I think my stitches went all the way up to like the back of my neck I am so sorry that I told that to you when you were pregnant oh I loved you and I loved the story I wanted information wherever I could get it and I don't know if you gave me the advice I feel like you said you should just go to the hospital <laughs> well by the way after it I was like I don't know why I was such a hippie about it I don't know why I didn't want the drugs do you know what next time <gasps> Next time, it's like, it's all good. You just want a healthy, happy baby. Why did I have to go through all that agony for two and a half days of the worst pain? I know. Weren't you blind with pain? It was beyond. And when when the midwife said, you've got to turn your ow into wow, I nearly punched her. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> It was so funny, but I mean, I don't know why I'm so we we do. I think we, we get really attached to our birth plan. The most important thing that I would say to anyone ever having a baby is have your plan, have it. It's all lovely and rosy. And then just be willing to chuck it out the window at any given moment in the name of just whatever is going to safely deliver your child and help you. You know, it was, it was really intense. I did realize, I think through the course of the pregnancy, I was fascinated by everyone's story and... I learned a lot, but also everyone seems to have their journey with it. And my son was two months early. And so that was... Did he? Yes. It was really terrifying. And my water broke in the middle of the night. And the doctor said, "Go to the, you need to go to the hospital right now. And I remember kind of thinking, maybe they'll just kind of sew me up. Maybe they'll just stick some more fluid in there. And then I go home and cook him. For a couple more months. <laughs> Put him on the back burner. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh my God. But he's great. He's oh, amazing. He's eight and a half. Sweet. Kid. And he's just a love. I do think about that threesome scene though sometimes. Like <laughs> I do too. And when you're rolling around, it's like, oh good God. I just oh golly. It was a lot. But you were such a trooper. I mean, you really were. I can't figure out if in some of my work, if I am a trooper or if I am such a rule follower and anxious about, because I do think about like some of the crazy stunts that I had to do in the first scary movies, which was like my first experience really. And how now I might be like, fuck, was that safe to tie me to the bottom of that pool? Like, <laughs> It feels not safe now. I know, but. I, do you think that there is an aspect of sort of people pleasing that I feel as particularly as an actress, like I was always so aware of not wanting to get a reputation for being in quotes difficult that I would just say yes to whatever was asked because I was so worried that if I wasn't compliant, there would be this label attached to me. And I, by the way, I don't think I was wrong. I think it was like that. Hopefully it is changing, but I do think that you way more say yes as an actress than I've seen actors say no a lot more. I completely agree. Okay, can you describe or tell me about your relationship with fame? I mean, listen, getting famous, it's like everyone else has taken hallucinogenic drugs and you're the thing that, that they're tripping. <laughs> like literally you're their trip. <laughs> it's like you're this giant psychedelic fucking mushroom. <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm a fucking psychedelic mushroom. That's what I am. I'm amazing. There is no connection to reality whatsoever. So it's like that and also getting shot out of a cannon. And also this sweet sentient part of you that always remains going, this is not safe and this is so precarious and please try not to attach your self-worth to it. I remember it deeply ignoring that voice really ignoring it, being like, yeah, shut up, Sheila. Shut it. I want all the free stuff. I want another boyfriend. I want an- I want to run down the street away from the paparazzi. You know, just terrible. And also fun and also amazing because in your 20s, all of that super like complete non-compliance with any risk assessment. So it was both terrible and amazing. And I feel like you're so lucky if you survive it in terms of your mental health, in terms of your physical health, and actually if you manage to carry on working within that same business and don't give it all up and go and, you know, become an equine therapist. I didn't think about doing that, but like, it sounds nice. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, and that late nineties, like that was when it was all in play, all of the stuff that we're talking about today in terms of sort of what you witness of the way that that women were treated and not just actresses but the women in general who I noticed so often executives and producers particularly when they were young or assistants they were almost fighting to become this male image they weren't fighting to become like whoever they are and the the cookie cutter shaped like a person but they wanted to be shaped like the awfully behaved producer who was 99 out of 100 times a dude. And of course they or we had witnessed that behavior lead to success. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The other day I was thinking about what has informed my relationship a bit with fame was when I was 11, I was cast in a play as Scout in To Kill a Mockingbird at a prominent theater in Seattle. And I did a radio interview for a local station, my very first press event ever. And I really wanted to sound like I knew what I was doing, you know, that I could handle this role and whatever. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but I remember kind of taking on a different personality a bit. On the way home, my mom said, I am so disappointed in you. I don't know who that was. And I brought this up to them a couple years ago, if they remembered this. They don't remember it. But to me, it was like the guilt of disappointing my parents and not consciously, but shifting into a weird <laughs> girl who was starring in a play. <laughs> this is how she behaves and this is how she talks. Yeah, but I really carried like a small blanket of kind of guilt with fame. And if I have a stranger encounter, I always want to like go above and beyond, which oh, yeah. is exhausting. Yes. But you know what I mean. You've been living this. <laughs> I do. When people, I mean, a heavily pregnant lady got into an elevator once with me and she saw me and she started crying, like really crying. And I was like, oh my God, are you having a baby? I was like, oh God, don't worry, I've done it too. Hang on, hold on. I got you. I got you. Oh, we're having it. And she was like beside herself. And then she was trying to get out that this film I made, my first movie, she'd watched with her mother while her mother was dying. It was their film. It had all this meaning. It was baked into her psychology and it was linked into this traumatic event in her life. And like this woman was, I mean, she was genuinely beside herself. But to be the person that she saw was not the person that I am. She saw the character from that film and it was a link to her mother who had died. And I remember going, my God, like, who am I going to be? Do I have to be that person or do I just be myself? And it was very, very weird. I mean, totally selfish. It was a very weird experience to go... I wonder what I'm supposed to be in order to comfort this person as opposed to just being a human being. Because I do think there is a weird dehumanizing of fame when people very specifically see you in a way. And of course, just being kind and giving her a hug and saying, I'm so glad you love the film. Thank God it was an elevator. <laughs> I know. It is weird because they don't know you. And if you're not in a place, if, you're, if your hands are full of groceries or whatever, you're not in a place where you can dedicate the energy to give that love back... It just can get tiring. Yeah, no, it can. Are you kidding? <laughs> Having a fight with a boyfriend or a, like a conversation that's intense and emotional and someone will come up and it's so weird. It's like they don't see what's happening in front of them, which is two people in a really intense moment. They just see the person who they want to get a picture with or an autograph. And it is odd because in that moment, what I get cross about, and I did say it to somebody because I was breaking up with a guy as this woman came over and she's like, I'm so sorry to disturb you, but can I just get a picture? And I was like, look, love, do you see what is happening here? Like, I know you want a picture, but are you aware I am breaking up with this dude and he is also crying? Like, it's so weird, fame. It's like 
when people perceive it, it takes away their notion of humanity because all they see is this thing. And I've always found that extraordinarily spooky, that... The fame part, the celebrity part of it is what is seen more than a human being in a particular instance. It's a very odd thing. Celebrity is so weird. After I first started getting recognized with Scary Movie, I felt the pull of the ego. Like, I remember I was like 23 and suddenly feeling like, I want that table. <laughs> Tell those people to move. <laughs> No, make them move with their dinner. <laughs> yeah. And feeling surprised, I think, that that was like a, a little bit of a knee-jerk thing in me and feeling like, fuck, what is my relationship going to be with this sudden status elevation? Yeah. Do I absorb it? Hopefully I've kept it in check. I'll, but, you know, I do feel like the worst offenders have no idea. It's true. But did you have that level of self-inquiry when it began to happen? Because I think it's impossible for it not to, to get caught up in the whole, oh my God, I get to go to the front of the line and I'll get ushered into a really good table and I don't have to make a reservation. Just like, did you have the presence of mind in the beginning to go, whoa, hold on, this isn't normal. This is awesome. But also this is going to divorce me from actual real life living I think my journey was a little more complex because I starred in a movie that was like considered the most offensive, ridiculous movie that was just this surprise hit. So I kind of felt humbled by that. Then the natural process of, of the rejection that even successful people go through. I mean, I think it was really hard for me to get work and... Growing up in Washington State and moving to Los Angeles where everyone seemed just so gorgeous. So between not getting work and not feeling gorgeous, that was humbling. It's super humbling. <laughs> That's the greatest thing that will save you is shit not working out. Yeah. I think if you plan on being an actor in Hollywood and if you want to, if you actually are interested in acting, it not working out for a while is the best possible medicine, the best possible thing. Because it really does connect you back, one, with if you are willing to kind of go the distance and also how you learn to never take any of that for granted ever again. Because I definitely remember thinking, man, this gravy train's never going to end. I'm going to ride it all the way to heaven. And, you know, of course it stops and you get vaulted off on the side of the road, you know, and your bag's dumped on your head. But it's good for you. It saves you. It's definitely what saved me. Humility is really hard and really awesome. Let me ask you this. Did you have a large circle of friends? I did not. And I think it has been this way my whole, I was just talking about this with my lovely boyfriend the other day. We're both sort of lone wolves who have these different friend groups. And I was quite a loner at school, but I had my friends, but they were all part of bigger groups. But then they would be in little sort of subgroups, and I didn't toe the line. I think I was a little bit too sassy and I didn't go along with stuff very well. So I, I was not part of groups, but I had great friends and I was definitely friends with loads of boys, which you weren't really supposed to do. But I had some lovely friends, friends who are still friends to this day, but I've never really been part of big friend groups. I've never been part of a clique. I don't think I have either, but I wanted to be. I can admit that now. At the time, I was just too proud. Mm. And because I was afraid of rejection, you know? Yeah. 
I think it's that. It's why I loved being in a play. And it's why I love being on a set. Like there is a particular thrill and love that I have for being on a set because I am in a big group of people and I am legitimately part of it and I'm allowed to be part of it. And actually maybe it's a bit sad because it's like, yeah, but it's just pretend and everyone's being paid to be there and everyone's going to dissipate after through. But I'm like, no, no, I don't mind. I just get to be part of a big group. I don't care that we <laughs> all have to be paid to talk to me. I'm with you. I was a camp counsellor growing up having, you know, 10 kids that were already predisposed to adore me. <laughs> exactly. I think that's it. I think lone wolves actually make one's good in a group because you, you've you always longed for it and had this idea about it. Yeah. Well, Minnie, it just leads me, I guess, into podcast because it is an intimate format and your podcast is very intimate and brilliant. Thank you, though. Mini questions is what it's called. From one podcaster to another, how are you finding the experience? I love it so much because as you know, as somebody who's had to promote things and go on talk shows and the rigmarole and the getting gussied up and the whole thing and the pre-interview with the producer and all of the deal, when really what a podcast does is it just cuts out all of the fat of all of that stuff and you're straight into the real meat of a conversation of an exchange with another human being. And for me, it is epic because you can get straight to it so quickly. There's an immediacy and a curiosity that if somebody's come on your podcast or if that's just you and me talking here right now, it is incumbent on you to have a conversation and to connect and I found however strange Zoom has been and how disconnected this past year has been for so many people, there's enormous connectivity when you show up to do a podcast because the guest wants to be there and the host wants to talk to them. And it's just brilliant. They're my favourite conversations, you know, outside of my friends and families that I've ever had in my life. Like, it's amazing to me. I wish I'd done it sooner. It's incredible. Like, you were so smart when you started doing it way ahead of everybody else and immediately in such an engaged way and engage the audience and engage the people you're talking to. Like, it's, I think it's a really wonderful art form. There was also a freedom and still is in controlling my narrative or at least having a say in like my version of events. Like you were saying earlier, you know, if you go on a talk show, you've got like four concentrated minutes to leave some kind of intense impression. <laughs> yeah. Or if you're doing a long format, like a journalist is interviewing you for a magazine, the terror of being misquoted. I mean, that lives in print. <laughs> you know, you're shoved through the meat grinder of their own perspective and God forbid they had their period that day. What I was eating for lunch. Oh yeah. You know, she only had a salad and it's like, you don't yeah. see the cake I ate three hours before this bitch. Yeah. You don't see how I snuffed that back and then I'm having a salad yeah. now because I'm trying to keep it. Yeah. And we have to fucking talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also, I appreciate that. Just being the arbiter of your own narrative. Yeah. Minnie, do you collect anything? Yeah, I do. I collect, <laughs> I just sound like such a granny. I collect blue and white china. <laughs> like sort of old English spode, blue and white china. I have sets and sets of it. And I go to swap meets and flea markets and <laughs> I'll haggle over it. 
I got into a mad fight with a woman once over a particularly nice spode teapot. I mean, she wanted to take my picture and go, this bitch tried to steal my teapot. <laughs> Not very glamorous. Do you display them? I bet they're gorgeous. Yeah, I do. But what I do do is I'm like, would you like to come over for tea? And then someone will go, yeah, sure, thinking they're just going to get a mug of tea. And then they will come and I will spread out the whole tea service. Would you like milk in your tea? Here, please use the tongs for the lemon slice. Would you like a piece of cake? It's underneath the cake stand. (laughs) Or a cupcake on this other stand. Do you see how they match? I'll show it off. Yeah, totally. I love that you do like a full English tea. There's kind of nothing better. 100%. 100%. It's my favorite meal. It really is. I'm with you. If I'm in a region where there's any kind of tea service, well, it would offer an English tea service. It has to kind of be that specifically because I'm crazy about those little tiny sandwiches. The little sandwiches. My cucumber sandwiches. Or actually, in fact, tomato sandwiches with the crust cut off. Heaven. Glorious. And cake and scones. So yeah, I collect... Do you collect anything? My collections are sort of, I'm a borderline hoarder. Are you? A little bit. Or I'm really lazy. I just have a lot of stuff. Like if you looked in my bathroom, because I have a tough time throwing a product half, you know what I'm saying. Well, you also know, you might want to use it again. I mean, you just don't know. Like I have that too. You might need it. I always feel like I'm an optimistic doomsdayer. You know, it's like that's that's such a good, an optimistic doomsdayer. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Don't you think, Minnie? Yeah, you're with me. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You know, I made this TV show back in like the very early 90s and we were shooting in Budapest not long after, you know, the wall had come down, the Berlin Wall had come down, but it was still very deprived. And one day this guy I was hanging out with, he was like, let's go to the market underneath the freeway. And underneath the market, there were all these people with everything laid out on blankets that they were selling. 
And we went by and there were all these really highly polished, beautiful car parts. And the guy started speaking to to the guy. And I was like, oh, um, what's he saying? And he said, well, well, I was saying that like the, all these car parts are, are for cars that have, you know, been discontinued long ago, like they're never going to be made again. And, and I said, and what did the guy say? And he said, well, he said, you never fucking know. <laughs> And I just loved that the guy was like holding on to these car parts. One day they're going to bring back the Miata 9000 and I'm going to be the guy with the part. My ship's going to come in. Oh, man. And maybe you did. eBay. I don't know. You never know. So I think that's optimistic doomsdaying. Yeah. Minnie, how old were you when you first felt what you perceived as love? I mean, golly. It was, I would say, 14. I really genuinely loved. And he's still my friend today. And I still see a version of my life with him that could have happened. And I think he does too. And I actually love the fact that we never got to ruin it. And that was my first, now when I look back, unsullied, uncorrupted love. But proper in love in a relationship that went on and on, I was 20. And it was brutal. He was a drug addict and he was beautiful. And he, as a lot of alcoholics and they're incandescent, there is this extraordinary charisma I have noticed in the junkies and alcoholics I've, I've come across in my life. They burn really brightly. And I was not what I would, or I considered then beautiful. I had crazy hair. I looked like slash. I was too tall. I was overgrown. I just couldn't I had not found any kind of rhythm yet. And this guy saw something in me that I didn't see. And he was so gentle and interested and kind and loving. And I honestly thought in my little 20-year-old brain, I was like, I knew it was bad that he was a junkie. I, I knew it was bad. But I also, I wanted to be loved and to experience love. And I was like, how can this not be love when he is as kind and wonderful and handsome and considerate and funny? And yeah, he nods out at like Christmas lunch, but like, hey, everybody's got something. <laughs> and I think these terrible, this terrible like emotional grouting that we do where we just sort of fit it in and always making excuses for his junkiness. And it was agony. It was agony to walk away from that, but. Thank God I did. It must have taken a lot of strength. How did you move on? I think I left college and I started getting work and, you know, was working really hard and shooting all over England, you know, bits and pieces of episodic television and whatever. And I I went and actually saw this life outside of it. And when I'd come back, once you leave the bubble and then you come back, I could really see how disastrous it was and he actually showed up on set one time you know it was someone else's tv show and I was like playing a cleaner and I remember my junkie boyfriend turned up on set and it was funny enough tea time and you know in England when you're shooting you don't have really well we didn't we didn't have craft service you have tea where they bring out these giant trays of sandwiches and cakes I really looked forward to tea time I remember I a lot of sweets Always sweets, but no actual food. But at tea time, everyone would down tools and these big trays of sandwiches and cake and scones would come out. And he was there and everyone had sort of been waiting for it because we were cold and we were shooting outside. And he'd literally demolished like 
four trays of cake, you know, because sugar, they need sugar. And he demolished the whole thing. And I just remember the whole crew, like, turning on me and, like, looking at this, I'd taken tea away. I think that's quite a bucolic way of realising that you've got to leave your junkie boyfriend is when, you know, you ruined tea for everybody. It's so British. Why did you leave your junkie boyfriend? He ruined tea. But it, it was... It was a realization. It really was. Yes. Also, though, getting the stranger's perspective on your relationship, getting to see in their eyes, they're assessing the situation kind of in front of you. And that gives you pause. Like, what are you doing with this person? And it really was like, oh, yeah, there's an interesting point here that I may have been ignoring. You have glasses on when you when you are in love. And I'm realizing that with my boyfriend now, who is, he's just one of the best people I've ever known in my life. And I'm constantly, both literally and figuratively, like taking my glasses off and putting them back on. And I'm like, oh my God, I love him without them on. Oh my God, I love them with them on. I love them when I take my rose colored goggles off and I love them. He's the same. He's the same level of goodness, whether I notice that it's my perception of him or it really is the fundament of who he is. And that I think that's that's being older and also being able to better assess one's own damage and whether you're in a relationship with someone whose damage just dovetails with yours. I think that's an excellent way to put that. Minnie, do you mind telling us how you met? Oh, good God. Yeah, it's pretty good. We'd met at a um, a lovely friend of mine and she was sick of people not meeting in Los Angeles. So she'd have these great Saturday morning breakfasts and she'd invite all these interesting people to come and meet each other and chat about all different things, nothing to do with the film business or sometimes that. And he was part of this great cabal of people that I met. Cut to, I'd been in a relationship for a really long time and the fires came November the 9th in 2018, the fires that came through Malibu. And my little tiny community where I live, 10 guys basically stayed and fought the fire and saved our little community. But there was quite a lot of ash and cleanup. And I desperately wanted to get back to my little community. And I couldn't get there because you couldn't get in by the road because it was burned out. And they'd stopped any ship to shore because people were looting even with proof of residence. But I was determined to get to my little community and to take supplies and to go help clean up. So I was like, I'm going to have to do a totally arrestable offence. Like I'm going to have to get a boat and I know the Coast Guard's going to be there and I'm probably going to get arrested. Who am I going to call? I was like, I know who I'm going to call. I'm going to call that guy who makes documentaries in really weird, hard to reach places. Like in places like Mali and in Chad and in Libya and in the Middle East and China and I'm going to call him. So I called him up. I love this. But I wasn't really thinking of him as being a boyfriend. I was like, I need someone who's ready for an adventure. And he showed up on the dock in Marina del Rey. He was like, I didn't really know what the vibe was. And he he literally had like a huge bag of snacks and like a satellite phone. And we got in and he was like, oh, it's just you and me. And I was like, yeah, but it's not a date. I mean, I just, you know, you're going to have to jump in the ocean too. And I forgot, I didn't bring you a wetsuit and it was November. And he was like, I'm cool. So we get there. Sure enough, there's the Coast Guard with like the mounted gun and we're hiding in a cove waiting for them to go on a patrol. The minute they go on a patrol, we zoom in, we jump in. They're already on the air horn saying, you better get out of the ocean. We're swimming in, we're paddling in all these supplies, all of this stuff. We get to the beach. 
My neighbours are there. We pull all the things on what? and we run off up the beach. And it's a sea-based incursion. And meanwhile, the Coast Guard is coming back like, we all got to be under arrest. Stay where you are. And we're like, no. We hooked it up the beach, jumped in a golf cart, went up. So now we're soaking wet in my ashy, not destroyed, but pretty messy house. And this dude just grabs a broom and we just spend the day cleaning up. So I'd been in this relationship for a long time with someone that I love very deeply who I'd found out had been cheating on me and it was utterly brutal. It was a brutal ending. So here I am sweeping up with this really great dude. And I, I put the broom down. And I'm like, yo, look, we're stuck here because the Coast Guard's waiting for us and the, they're probably going to arrest us if we try and get back in the boat. So can I just ask you some questions about dudes? And he was like, sure. So I just asked him every question about why men do the shit that they do. Why do they need more than one woman? Why... What is infidelity? Why, when you're happy and loving and you have a family, would you want to destroy that? What is all of this stuff? And he just sat there and answered every single question about men that I've ever wanted to ask. And there were no stakes. And he was so amazing. At the end of it, I was like, right, thank you very much. That's awesome. And I was like, we got to swim back to the boat. So we jump back and it's now dark. We jump back in the boat. He gives me his coat in the speedboat. We go back to, and we're standing on the dock of the Marina del Rey and I'm like looking at the sky and I'm like, I'm ruined. Like I'm absolutely good for completely nothing. And he's like, great, because I don't want anything at all. And I was like, excellent. Let's just be like rebound. And he was like, fine. And that's how we fell in love. Oh, and we just me. would hang out together. And he's the greatest man I've ever been with, for absolute sure. And we love each other so honestly and completely, and we laugh all the time, and my son loves him. And that's the deal. Do you remember his answers to your questions? Like, what did he say about men and infidelity? Yeah, so he said, listen, he said, you just have to look at it, that a man, and he said, and, I, and it's not limited to men, people will have a hundred bad ideas a day and particularly around sex and relationships, a hundred bad ideas will go through your head. The measure of your character and who you are is whether you choose to act on it. You can't slice yourself up for having the thought, but if you choose to act on it, that's your character. So it's really the deal between a person and their character. He said to me, if you think you can give this guy a second chance because you think he made a mistake, or if you really fundamentally think that he has a bad character or a character that needs an enormous amount of work, then that's the work that you need to do. But he was like, it falls into two very clear camps. People who have a good character and make a mistake or people who really are systemically damaged and will continue repeating that kind of behavior. And I thought that was extremely salient and smart. That's brilliant, I think. I love that. I do too. Minnie, when you found out about the infidelity, did you, like, how is your hindsight? Do things add up yeah, it. I mean, yeah. Because I think we search for that, don't we? Like, kind of know, I guess, where we were in that time and what our relationship was like. And was that period of fighting my fault? Or was that something else? You know what I mean? This was someone I'd known since I was about 17. We'd been great friends. I knew the woman that he married and had children with. They'd been divorced for six years when we got together, he was like a part of home for me. And it was such a relief to love this great friend. I could not believe when I was just lying in bed one night right next to him, the woman who he'd been having an affair with, she just screenshot all these 
texts between them and she just sent them to me. Oh God. When I look back, now I see that his his dislocation, I knew he'd been going through something, but I thought it was me. I'm working too much. I'm not loving him enough. I'm not having sex with him enough. I need to do more. I completely thought it was my fault. And now I realize that that is exactly what men do when they're having affairs. They do, but they become distant. But I I didn't believe it. And I knew that he cheated on his wife, but I was like, but that was different. So I actually had all the information. It's just, I wanted to be in love with my friend and I wanted our relationship to work. And it it did work. It was wonderful. And then it was completely and utterly destroyed. It's very strange. I think he wanted to stay in the relationship and keep having the affair. I think that was actually his version of it that would have worked out, was that. Really? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But Minnie, was your breakup immediate? Like, how does your brain work in terms of decision making? Were you like, I'm a surgeon with a scalpel, you're out of here? Or the long tug of like, you know, the half-life relationships where it's like six months? Yeah, no, I, you know, I'd read my Esther Perel immediately where she's saying, you know, it, it's both people's, not fault, but both people are in there. So I was like, okay, well, I couldn't imagine my life without him. I couldn't imagine that it wasn't going to be us forever. Why would we have been such good friends our whole life? Why if for this to happen? So I wanted to try and make it work. And it was agony because I was like, I don't know how to take him back. I can't take him back, but I can't be without him. So there was a lot of that. Then he he said he'd go to therapy with me. So we went to therapy for these three days straight for these Mondo sessions. And then he said, oh, I've got to go back to New York. And then we'll, the therapist was like, well, you know, do your work, all of both of you and like connect with each other in a month and see where you're at. Because he was like, it's over. I want to be with you. And literally like the next day, I get another text from this woman who he's having a relationship with going, I'm seeing with him right now in Jamaica. Oh no. <laughs> and at that point, the axe dropped. And thank God, like, thank God that she sent me that. It was done. And I knew I just had to deal with the healing. I think about that woman, like, her whole idea of her relationship with my long-term boyfriend was completely different. Like, I'll never know the stuff that he was saying of what he must have been saying to her in order for her to believe that she was in a relationship with him. Were they in a fight? Did she not get what she wanted and that's why she sent? I guess he wasn't telling me. He wasn't telling me it was over. And she wanted to tell me so that I would then know and then leave him, which is exactly what happened. And then are they together? I don't know because I'm pretty sure they're not. I don't, I don't have any contact with him whatsoever. And it is, um, I miss my friend who's completely untrustworthy and needs to do an enormous amount of work on himself. And I hope he does. You know, what are you going to do? Yeah. When you got those text messages, did you tell your friends and family immediately? I sent it immediately to my mother and my sister. You did? The whole thing. I couldn't be alone in it, however selfish that is to like drag someone into your pain. But the betrayal was of them too. Like he was part of our family. So I was like, you got, you got to see this and tell me, you got to tell me what to do. In my past, in the experiences of infidelity that I've lived through, I've kind of gone both ways. Like one time I was telling everybody, anybody who would listen. (laughs) And another time I felt like, I didn't even want to explore anything. I just didn't want outside influence. I wasn't sure if I, I don't know. Isn't it funny? It's to do with the shape of the love, the shape of the breakup. It's not one size fits all. It really isn't. That's so true. Okay, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? 
It would either be Cornwall, where I am right now, in the southernmost tip of England. It is magical, truly. It is one of the most magical places in the world. Or I'd live in Hawaii, which is the other most magical place in the world for me. I did a whole driving tour of England. Oh, Cornwall and the Cotswolds. We did 10 miles today. We did 10 miles through the driving rain along the ocean and then the bright blue sky. We went to this cairn, which is basically through time people have left rocks for people who have died. And my mother died uh, two months ago. Oh, Minnie. And we took... Her favourite flowers, which were buttercups, which grow all through the fields and the hedgerows. So I just found a lovely rock on the path and I found some buttercups and we went to the cairn and it it was, it's so magical. It really, she loved it here so much and it's been, it's astonishing how healing, being in a place that you know your loved one who is gone loved. It's, I felt so close to her. It was great. It was hard, but it was great. That's such a beautiful way to think about someone. It was my friend Tom who said, he has lost both his parents and he said, grief is just love amplified. Grief is an amplification of love. And it is, and you you have to look at it like that. You can't just feel that it's pain and loss. There is so much love in it. When you pass through the initial agony, that is really what the distillation is, is love of grief. So... I look forward to that. Minnie, how incredibly moving. And I love envisioning you in Cornwall. The ruggedness, the cold, the ocean. Oh, I love all of it. The boys were in yesterday and the water temperature, I'm trying to think of what it is in. Oh God, they were. You know, it's probably about 46. (laughs) And they were in, they were in full blown, not with wetsuits, just in their swimming shorts, just in the driving rain. They just went and just jumped in and I'm going to go do it tomorrow. It's life-affirming, that's for sure. Wow. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, All right. So outside of the entertainment industry, what talent or ability would you like to have? Let's see. I would really love to be able to sail, like really sail, like sail a sailboat. Called the lone wolf. (laughs) Yeah, like lone wolf it, like through the Aegean islands, like just do that and like have people, you know, come on board for a couple of days and they've got to fuck off and it's just going to be me in the ocean again. Either that or a big wave surfer because I surf, but I'm in no way, shape or form a big wave surfer. But I, I would love to be able to ride like a 25, 30 foot wave. I hear a lot about like the euphoria that I'm getting the sense it's almost hard to describe because I'm not the most like athletic person anyway, <laughs> but cold water and I'm not at the strongest swimmer, like, but I do really appreciate the way people talk about it. It's magical. It's how I stayed living in LA for sure, was like finding Malibu and being able to properly go and surf and do that. That's definitely was the antidote to whether work was working out or work was not working out or or anything. It was the answer. This is the most compelling argument for me to attempt it that I've heard. (laughs) Oh, also, it's just, it's super fun. You could totally do it. It's just about going in the place with the right conditions. Like you just want little tiny waves and someone who knows what they're doing and just to push you on a really big board and you'd stand up and you'd have that feeling. You'd have that euphoric feeling. My fiance, he's been wanting to teach me for a long time. I love surfing for you. I think that's a great thing for you to go try. Do you have a favorite Olympic sport? Yeah, the swimming. Swimming. 
The whole deal. Just the whole deal. I love it. I don't understand how their bodies are like, how they can do that. And when I think about the hours that they have put in, in that pool, it's so kind of grim and there's such dolphin like glory in it. Yeah, I could watch that for days. I always wonder what they think about during all of those laps. (laughs) Minnie, here's a question. If you had to make money in a different realm, like outside of the entertainment industry, what would be the most practical job search for you? Because I realized I'm not equipped for much. Yeah, definitely not equipped for much. I could take people on long walks. (laughs) I could be a really good like a hiking guide. All right, like a walking tour. You could be a, a walking tour guide. I could totally be that. I would also, with my sister, I would like to run a bed and breakfast. Oh, that's nice. She's very organized and I like, you know, interior design. I would just sit by the fire and she would do stuff and I'd, I'd get my tea set out and I would organize tea. I am so there. Minnie, who would you invite to your dream dinner party? Oh, God. I mean, right off the bat, Donny Hathaway, Bob Marley, and Marvin Gaye. Then I would have my great-grandmother, Rose, who just sounded absolutely fucking fantastic. And her daughter, my grandmother, Constance, who also, in a time when women were just not allowed to do what we can do, found a way for her four daughters to become these independent, extraordinary women. So my grandmother and my great-grandmother, my son Henry, because he makes the best toasts ever, 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 ever. Henry made a toast once when I was with my ex and his ex-wife and their children and my son Henry and me, and we were having this first dinner together and Henry stood up and he went, "Uh, I'd like to make some toast. Um, What I would like to say is congratulations, everybody, for being here. This is extraordinarily awkward. Good job, guys. Good job. A round round of applause. He said it dead seriously. Like everybody had to be like, yes, gosh, well done. Yes, everybody, well done for being here. He will talk to anybody. And then I would have some teachers, two of my teachers from school who were the most epic underwriters of what I ended up doing, my English teachers who are the reason that I'm an actor because they told me if you want to act, then you'd better start reading. And they made everything come alive for me. I love that answer. I spent a lot of time reading as well as a kid. And I do think that it led me to acting. Yeah, I, I don't know if there would have been another path. But Minnie, what books do you remember really feeling during those times? I mean, pretty much everything by Thomas Hardy and every Shakespeare which they explained like it was a language. They taught me the language that you had with which to understand. And they taught it in a way that was patient and extraordinary and amazing. And, it, and I learned the language and then read all these plays. And I just could not fucking believe it. I could not believe that one person could be that funny and that dramatically genius. And, you know, there's a lot of people who say, well, it wasn't one person, but I choose to believe it was. And an enormous amount of poetry an enormous amount of Ted Hughes and Philip Larkin and Sylvia Plath and Maya Angelou and Walt Whitman and Coleridge and Shelley, Yeats, huge amounts of poetry, which I still read an enormous amount of poetry. It's my favourite thing to do, actually. 
is just get anthologies of poetry because I love how much crap poetry there is as well. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that like chewing over a written line is something... You know, when somebody teaches you how to look into language and find meaning beyond the words themselves, for me, that was like being given a superpower. I couldn't believe it. Like there was this teacher, my teacher, Graham Banks, and we were studying this poem called An Arundel Tomb by Philip Larkin, which if you haven't read it, just go and read it. It's about the passing of time and it's about love. And it ends up, you're at this tomb in Arundel Cathedral, this very ancient cathedral in England. And there is a tomb of a knight and his lady and there's an effigy on top of the tomb of the knight in all of his chain mail and his thing and his lady with her little dog at her feet lying next to him. And cut into the stone, when you look at it, Philip Larkin writes in this poem, you see that he slipped his hand out of his big metal glove and he's holding her little tiny hand. And what Graham Banks, my teacher, said, because there's a line about how time has blurred their faces, you know, that basically time has worn away the stone. And I was like 14 when he taught me this poem. He said to me, he was like, Minnie, you're not going to get this now, but there's another meaning in this. And one day when you've fallen in love and you're lying down very close to somebody that you love, their face will appear blurred to you. And I suddenly got it. It was like a shockwave that went through me of the idea of intimacy and the idea of, I can imagine that. And then maybe when the first time it happened and I was lying with someone who I loved and their face was blurred and I remembered that poem and I remembered him teaching it to me and I remembered how he helped me connect with language, which is one of the greatest gifts that I've ever been given. That's amazing. I, I, <laughs> I feel, God, I just feel that like, I waste a lot of time. <laughs> you do not. Yeah, I do, Minnie. You do. I've done a lot of puzzles over quarantine. I do the spelling bee. Look, <gasps> I get nothing done either. I've just like, these are my go-tos. Poetry's a go-to. Um, what personality traits did you inherit from your parents? Invasions, a quick wit, the ability to listen and curiosity in the world around me. I mean, my mother would literally, she would pull the car off the freeway and literally put the hazard lights on and get us out of the car to march through some hedgerow to point out a flower. And she'd be like, that is very rare. That is a very rare mauve campion. And then she'd be like, don't forget that. Get back in the car. Like a a curiosity about the world. My mom does the same thing. And always, like, if the mountains are out, that's what was always a thing in Seattle. The mountains are out. And the appreciation of small things. And what's kind of wonderful, I guess, is that you will be telling Henry those things. Yeah. And that is how maybe we achieve some kind of eternity, is by keeping the Latin languages alive. No, (laughs) it is. That's how we keep. That's the legacy. It is. I already see it because he does it with me. He shows me things. He goes, here, come and look at this. This is the tree. This egg fell out of the tree. Do you think something ate that egg or do you think it escaped and flew away? And I'm like, I definitely don't think it escaped and flew away. (laughs) It's definitely dead. Oh, God. I love it. (laughs) I take pride in a little bit in how pragmatic I can be as a parent. The other day, Jack asked me what a rectum was. 
It's geometry. A rectum is a type of triangle. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Pragmatism. I think that that has been one of the nice things about being a geriatric parent. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was two years older than you when I had Henry, so... <laughs> We can laugh about um, more things. Um, oh, but I wanted to ask you, when you spoke earlier about loving deeply with multiple people in your life, and I love that quality about you, where did you get that from, do you think? You know, I wonder about where it came from. I wonder how much comes from deficit and how much comes from imagination. But the depth of feeling... I think both my parents felt deeply, but both of them came from, you know, my father was born in 1921 and my mother was born in 1937. Like they came from a generation where your depth of feeling was not an asset. So they kept it really hidden, but it came out in my DNA. So I think a depth of feeling and a fearlessness about launching into things and things like love, which are dangerous and wild and beautiful but I did it again and again and again falling in love and the agony of it ending never stopped me from falling in love again when you were a girl did you crush a lot I did I did crush on boys I definitely crushed on boys but I was also like really busy I felt like there was a lot going on like there was a lot of other activities that seemed time well better spent like I wanted to be racing across the fields. I wanted to be building a camp. I wanted to be riding horses or devising a play and writing a poem. I definitely did crush on boys, but it wasn't my main focus. I think growing up, I was looking for a lot of power in any ways. Like to me at that time, I think power meant money. Mm. Like the idea of being financially dependent never crossed my mind. Me too. Absolutely. It was just like, that's just got to be, I don't know how. Staying out of the how of something, I think is a really good lesson. Just know, like you knew, I just need to be financially independent. I don't exactly know how that's going to happen, but I'm going to do that. I really wanted to write a book on like successful gold diggers in Los oh. Angeles. Oh, you could interview a lot of people. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think they admit it. But I do think that navigating waters in that way, I am just clueless. I don't really, do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. Because I had, a, I can't really say she was a friend, but she was someone that I would see around quite a lot. And I'd literally be like, he gave you a car? Like you have a car? And then the next, like two months later, it'd be like, he gave you an apartment? Like a an apartment. There were these girls, I was like, how do you do that? And for that to be like sustainable, like, and also feel interested in life. And this one girl said to me, the one with the car and the apartment from the dude, she was like, I just want to feel safe. And that for her was the cornerstone. I really realized it was like, everybody's coming at all of this life business with a whole set of considerations that are not the same. So judging really anybody... As long as they're not really harming someone. What an amazing answer because it makes me, the thought of that, feel so unsafe. Me too. It makes me feel like I'm in prison. Like nothing is in my control. No. Like what do I owe? Awful. And what do I continue to owe? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Nothing's free. <laughs> it's awful. But for her, that was safety. Yeah. Ugh, God, I guess we have to have perspective. 
<laughs> I guess we do. Well, <laughs> I guess can't just guess judge right off the bat. <laughs> Too much fucking perspective. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Minnie, I love you so much, and I cannot I thank you too, enough. Man. You are just a fabulous guest, and I've missed you. I think about you a lot. Whenever you come back to Los Angeles, let's please hang out. I'd love, love to see you. Things to look forward to. Yes. Oh, definitely. I'm so happy. I'm so um, glad you're doing this. It is just your time well spent. Because you're so good at it. It's great. Thanks, Minnie. And I feel the same about you. And I love you very, very much. And I was so looking forward to today. I love you too. All right, honey. Bye, darling. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hey everyone, April Beyer is back, now officially as my much-needed co-host. As you know from previous episodes, April brings great advice, insight, and years of experience. I am so thrilled to have her. Hi! Hi! It's so good to see you guys! (laughs) I cannot tell you how much I love your hair color. I know, we're twins! (laughs) As you can see, I have some roots I need to touch up here. Me too. Will you tell April and I what's going on? Yeah. So a little bit of a background. My boyfriend and I, I love him very much and I love the life we're building together. Uh, We have beautiful dogs together. Uh, We actually just bought our first house. But I would say the biggest issue we consistently have had to deal with ever since we've been together is his temperament or anger management issues. When he's frustrated or something triggers him, and sometimes he can be easily triggered by like the smallest things, the only way he knows how to respond is through anger. He doesn't really have like the skill set or like healthy coping skills to manage or offset that anger. And when he has these outbursts, you know, it's my tendency to withdraw. So I will go kind of recluse in my office and the dogs will follow me because like they'll be scared and they'll hide under my desk as well, just because sometimes they can be really intense. And I'm just like tired of like feeling like I'm walking around on eggshells 
just not knowing when or what is going to be the next thing to set him off. And I have no intention of leaving. I'm very committed to this relationship. I love him very much, but it just scares me for our future if we can't, you know, bring his temper under control. It also just sometimes feels unfair to me because I feel like his emotions are just so overpowering. So, you know, I I just feel like there's no room for me to be angry or mad or sad or sometimes even happy because it just seems like his emotions trump mine. Whatever mood he is in, whatever given day, that's kind of sets the whole tone for the whole house, you know, and I just feel like I've rubbed off on him for sure a little bit, but I feel like he's rubbed off on me and not necessarily most positive ways. I just fear I don't like the person or the traits I've uh, recognized in myself more recently. I just feel like I've become more cynical, more negative, more anxious, more judgmental than I used to be. And not to solely blame him for these things. You know, I know I need to own my own shit as well. There are other factors, but I definitely think that has played a significant role So yeah, I guess just given all that information, I just... I want April to give you guidance, but I do want to say I know very much how you're feeling and I think it's really remarkable. I want to give you the compliment of being able to recognize shifts in yourself. I wasn't able to do that. But I did want to ask you before I let April take over, have your friends and family noticed changes in you as well? Like, what are their feelings? Yeah, my family, probably not so much because I live far away. I'm really close with my family, but I'm just kind of the odd bird. So they actually have never met him. (laughs) Some of my siblings have, but like he's never met my parents, but they do make like a running joke sometimes that he's made up (laughs) because like they've never met him before or like during COVID my siblings and I would have you know a virtual game night and like there's significant others would participate but it made my partner feel really uncomfortable so he never participated so some of my siblings just kind of tease me and it kind of hurts my feelings but like they've seen like maybe some red flags through that I do feel like I kind of stopped opening up to some of my friends because at the same time, I recognize things aren't perfect with us and there are things that need to be fixed and better and improved. But I also at the same time feel really protective of him and I feel really protective of our relationship. And I feel like my friends here in town have only heard or like seen the bad and they haven't gotten like the whole picture and the spectrum of why I'm still here. Right. I so know this. Oh, man. Why are you still there? Can we hear why you love this guy? Yeah. When he's at his best, like, he he's playful. He's funny. He is witty. He makes me laugh. He adores me. Like, the thing is, he's not blind to his issues. Like, he's, he's recognized these problems he has. And, like, I know it's a big fear of his that I'm just going to abandon him because he he's had his heart broken before and he's gone through depression. And he says all the time, like, I know one day you're going to leave me. Like, you're too good for me. And he says all these things. And I'm just constantly reassuring that I'm not going anywhere. But it's also unfair to me to just keep going about pretending like nothing's wrong here and we need to address these issues. And I've brought up therapy and he's gone to therapy before and it's helped him. 
But for some reason, recently, when I've brought up, he's just either gotten defensive or come up with excuses as to why he can't do that. I so know what it's like to be with somebody who you feel like you're walking on eggshells. I love the way you phrased that his emotions are so dominant in the relationship. There isn't room for yours. And in my case, I was reserved with my family and friends. I think what I learned in the relationship that I feel like is comparable to what you're going through is that it was impossible for me to make this person happy. I couldn't do it. I tried for a long time and it's tragic. And I'm not sure if your partner is exactly like this, but I know that you alone can't shoulder that burden. And when I finally left the relationship, even though it meant sacrificing a lot of things like the practical things in my life, when I finally did make that decision, it truly felt like somebody had taken a 300 pound backpack off of me. Yeah. April, will you um, help guide us? Yeah, I just have so many questions for you. Was your childhood and your upbringing similar to your boyfriend's? I don't think so. I mean, he comes from a little bit more put together, normal family, if you will, to oversimplify it. You know, his parents are together. He has a sister. You know, he has a good relationship with all of his family. And I come from kind of a dysfunctional, crazy, chaotic home and upbringing. My parents fought my entire childhood. Growing up, they never even slept in the same bed. (laughs) I remember going to like my first slumber party and thought it was like scandalous that her parents were sleeping in the same bed because I didn't, you know, you only know what you know. That's my dorm. Um, (laughs) But um, yeah, I feel like our family... You know, we didn't deal with things in a healthy way at all. There were a lot of issues. There's still a lot of issues. And it's our tendency to just like tuck it under the rug and, you know, let enough time go by and not really address it. And then just go about your day and pretend everything's fine. And then the next time you see each other, it's kind of like, ah, la da everything's good. <laughs> uh, we never really talk about our emotions or how to cope with heavy things. Well, then congratulations for... Anna and I were saying earlier before we started talking to you, like how amazing it is that you are able to articulate what's going on in such a clear way, even though you weren't granted those skills early on. So good for you just for now taking the time just to stop and go, okay, wait a minute, we have to assess this. Yeah. What's interesting is you're just living that out right now. I would guess that there wasn't room for your emotions when you were growing up. There's several kids it's chaotic, it's dysfunctional. Was there any room for your anxiety, pain, happiness, joy stories when you were a kid? Did you get to have space or was it just everybody's just trying to get through the day? I did, but not necessarily through my family. If anything, I've gotten closer to my siblings as adults as we've all gotten into our 30s. And now I can console and be honest and we can have deeper conversations, but certainly not with my parents. But I still had enough of a support system outside of my home that I didn't feel like I was completely abandoned or falling apart. In spite of all the chaos, I, I look back at my childhood in a very like positive light, even though there was a lot of heaviness. Okay. I, I'm just going to be really real with you. Yeah. The love you have for him and this protection of, you know, these people don't understand. They'd only see the bad side. 
you're basically just reliving childhood of throwing the stuff under the rug. You're used to being in the chaos. And so you've gotten good at it. Mm-hmm. And it is starting to wear and tear on you. But just because you're good at handling chaos doesn't mean you continue handling chaos. And you're very, very adamant and you're very protective of like, I'm not leaving this guy. Yeah. But our hands are a little tied here right now because I'm worried for you. If you had grown up in a house that was calm and peaceful and your parents were communicators and you got that love and nutrition from them, you wouldn't have lasted a day with this guy, just to be honest. April, this is so speaking to me too. Yeah. I mean, this is hard stuff, right, Anna? Like if we grow up with something, we get used to it. But just because we're good at it doesn't mean we should. Yeah. It normalizes a degree of it. Yeah. I can see it in you. You know, I'm not a a clinical therapist, but I deal with this kind of stuff all day, every day when I'm coaching and I'm advising and I'm helping couples and I'm helping them out of heartbreak. So I won't diagnose because that's not my lane, but I will tell you that this doesn't get better. And it doesn't get better with you throwing a bunch of love his way and keeping him from people and being the gatekeeper of the antics. You're getting lost. And if you say there's no room for your pain, sadness, anger, frustration, and joy, and you yourself are starting to disintegrate the traits that you had that were social and happy and spontaneous, babe, if those are going away, if you lose yourself, what will you have left? I can't tell you how urgent and important it is that you call this for what it is and that you stop protecting him because protecting him is not loving him. keeping him away from people. Why doesn't he show up for game night with your siblings? Why did everybody else's significant partner show up and he didn't? This is borderline dangerous where all of a sudden you become such a recluse that you start to lose your connections to friends, family members along the way. What about when there's kids and those kids make things more difficult and more stressful and more challenging, or there's a health crisis or a financial crisis? If you're having it now, this doesn't change with time. And you're mommying him through this. And that's not your role. Yeah. And when you when we asked you what you love about him, you said, he's playful, he's funny, he's witty, he makes me laugh. That's one thing. Those aren't four. That's one. He's funny. And then you said he adores you. So maybe we should talk about how does he adore you? Because adoring you doesn't put you in a position of having to leave the room and the dogs are hiding under the coffee table. That's not adoring So you need to understand and really get educated on what adoration truly looks and feels like. But you didn't get to see that growing up necessarily. And that's why it's hard for you to distinguish. Him being funny, yeah, it's a benefit. You get to laugh more, but it's like a slice of the pie. This other stuff is trumping everything for me as I hear it. Like my heart is sinking for you. And I want to tell you how to talk to him. And I want to tell you how to fix this and give you some tools. But everything in my being is telling me that this is super unhealthy and possibly even codependent. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, like, this is making me a little emotional. It really makes me think about this relationship I was in where the eggshells came down to, like, if I was waiting in the car while he was still getting ready or reading the newspaper and watching television at the same time. Like, I could never, ever predict. And it was never physical. Yeah, no. It was just dominant. It was so consuming. Like, when you said that he tells you, that you're too good for him and, you know, you're going to leave him. I heard that all the time. Or like he would constantly say rude things to me in front of other people. 
And later on, I, you know, in private, I would be like, that hurt my feelings or like I'd be mad. And I can't imagine I had the maturity to say that hurt my feelings. But I remember him saying, well, everyone knows that you're the center of attention and, and you know me, you know me better than anyone else. And this is how I try to get attention. So it did make me feel like this person can't function without me. He's making me more powerful, even though he's constantly making me feel feel powerless. It was very much a struggle for me. So I think I want April to say more, but as you guys are talking, I know this is a lot for you to digest instead of providing a concrete solution for you two to stay together and be happy. April and I are kind of suggesting another path. So it's not something that you need to be proactive on immediately in any way. But I do want you to think about, over the next four months, the assessment. Mm-hmm. You know, when we can't share our person with our closest people in our lives, I've been there too, by the way. None of us are immune, okay? When we start not accepting invitations or saying, well, you don't understand him, we're in a pattern. And, you know, you have dogs together and you have a house together. And it's really hard to think of what would life look like if we weren't together and how do we unravel all of this? But that's all achievable. That's actually a solvable problem, right? First and foremost, it's really spending time with yourself because I'm going to guess that his childhood wasn't as pulled together as you think. Maybe they had money. Maybe they had outside appearances of togetherness. But somebody didn't allow him space for his emotions and expression. Yeah. Maybe there was a narcissistic parent. I don't know. But there's no way that you can be triggered like that. And if he doesn't get home until 630 at night and he's gone from like 8 to 630, there's only so many waking hours in those evenings and then Saturday and Sundays, right? So if your evenings and Saturdays and Sundays are kind of 80-20 of bad to good, then what would it look like if, let's say, he lost his job and he was home all day, right? Most of your life should be joy. You know, a a friend of mine, I don't know if it's still out there, she had this thing called the boyfriend app, and she was having such a toxic relationship with somebody, so she started taking her calendar. And if she had a bad day, she would color in the day blue, like it was a bad day for our relationship. If they had a good day, she would color it orange. And then she would every month look at her calendar and see how much blue, because she kept talking like you, right? We've all done it. Like, oh, well, today was a good day. And then it satiates us and it gets us to the next day. And like, well, Wednesday was better than last week. So, hey, there's a glimmer of hope. But when she looked at her calendar and went, oh my gosh, you know, 21 days out of the month are blue. That's not worth it. You're a beautiful young woman. There are people out there with phenomenal coping skills and who aren't triggered every second. Are we perfect? No. Are our partners perfect? Absolutely not. Do we have to learn to kind of deal with their insecurities? And yes, 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 yes. But when your own being starts to shift to something you don't even like, that's when you're in a relationship that isn't serving you as a woman. And I know that's not what you want to hear because I think you've got your heels dug in on this one. Like you want to stay. I hear you. I mean, I just... I don't feel like I'm anywhere close to the point where I'm ready to get up on it. I think that like any major decision in your life, you can't exactly pinpoint the thing. But I do believe in the idea of a little seed germinating. It's like we slowly kind of emerge at our major decisions without realization sometimes. And maybe as things open up, maybe it'll be a glorious summer. 
I say this without fully believing it, just because I feel like it's hard for me to separate what feels like a very similar relationship that was a little less than 10 years. And I just see a lot of me in you. I mean, I know, Anna, I had the same thought when I read your book. I was like, gosh, I like relate to her so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about creating requests, you guys? How about stating what it is that you want? So maybe after talking to us today... It's sitting down with your journal that's private, that he doesn't see, right? And you write down, in my dream of dreams, what would I want and how would I make this better, right? How do I want to be treated? What triggers me? And what do I want from him? So you brought up therapy, which was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And it's the smart and responsible thing to do. And he rebuffed you and got really angry and tossed it away. And what did you do? You kind of just went, okay, okay, okay. That's when you're doing the, what Anna was saying is like walking on eggshells. And so you put out an idea. It's like, okay, never mind, never mind. I didn't mean it, didn't mean it. And that's that cycle. That's the vicious cycle that you wrote to us about. So the only way you stop the vicious cycle is knowing what your worth is and what your value is and saying, the only way this will work is if we together go to someone who can help us communicate when we get triggered. Yeah. Men don't want to hear you got to go to therapy, right? When we get triggered, so clearly I'm doing something that triggers you, you do something that triggers me, and I want us to have a beautiful, healthy, successful relationship because I love you. So how that's going to work, and my requirement is that we together go talk to somebody and we commit to 90 days once a week, and then we see, we reassess from there if maybe we need to keep going or maybe I go separately, you go separately. But I really think we could benefit as a couple yeah. from somebody just hanging out with us. Like make it seem easy. Make it about the two of you and say, if that doesn't happen, this won't last. Yeah. Because I can't do this because I'm losing myself. Now, if you say, if I'm losing myself and that doesn't break his heart, then he doesn't adore you. Yeah. Adoring is, oh my gosh, my beautiful woman is like disintegrating before my very eyes. My behavior is making her reclusive and angry and critical and judgmental. I'm not, I don't want that for my girl. That's how you know somebody adores you. So I would make a requirement and a request, but get super duper clear on what it is that you want first and then go to him with that offer. And you can't back down. Yeah. You know, you don't kick the can down the road. It's like you give it a date. Maybe we find somebody together August 1st, you know, put a deadline on it. And if it's no, no, I'm not, I hate that, blah, 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 blah. You need to say, why does that scare you? Why does it scare you to enlist the support of someone? If it could make us amazing as a couple, and plenty of couples have fixed their communication issues by going to a therapist, if that could help us, why wouldn't you want to? Right. You're okay. And then if he has abandonment issues, clearly, I don't know where he got them, but he does. You could say, if we do this, I'm in this. I'm in this. I'm in this because I love you. Yeah. But anytime somebody says, I know you're going to leave me, I know you're going to leave me, it's because they don't love themselves. They don't have any faith that they're good enough for you. And he sees that. But you keep thinking you're the one from the bad family, so you should make allowance. It's like, no, something was missing there in his world, okay? None was better than the other. So make your requirement and then dig into the why. Why would that scare you? And I'm saying this because I love us. I love us enough that I want this. And start expecting him to show up. And when you find yourself going into your negative spin about people or judgmental or critical or reclusive, take an action. Call a friend and say, let's go have dinner. 
call up somebody and give them a positive comment. Like whatever the behavior is happening within you, stop immediately and go, "Ah, oops, wait a minute, that's not me. And do something that is opposite and reverse engineer it and make that action happen immediately. Do not lose your connection to your friends and yourself and all of this along the way. But you've got to put your foot down because it's when we go, oh, no, I didn't mean it. And, oh, it's upset you. So I'm just going to keep this to myself. You lose and his temper and his coping skills never get better because he gets to be reactive and he wins. That's how he gets attention. That's how he gets you to be back on your heels. He doesn't maybe intentionally do it. But that's how he manipulates the situation to get the love and the attention. So you got to take that life raft away from him. Don't go into the other room and hide. Just to look at him and say, you will not speak to me that way. And you stay calm. You will not. I need you to be calm. I need you to speak to me like an adult. (laughs) I need you to speak to me like somebody who loves me. And that's killing me right now what you're doing. It's hurting me. And you're taking too much of the weight and the responsibility for all of this. Something inside of him is unhappy. Love him, don't protect him. There's a difference. When we love people, we want them to have their journey and we want them to have a better life, even if it means it's without us. I know that's not what you want to hear. I know, I know. Uh, No, I mean, again, I know it's, I've known for a long time we need professional help and counseling. That's not news to me. If I can get him there to counseling, I really think we have like a fighting shot, you know? I just want you to know, in my comparable relationship, we never went to counseling. My friends did. My friend had a situation like this, Anna. It was brutal. I mean, I would be with her when the screaming would be happening. And it did shift. And they have a beautiful relationship now. But it took some work because it wasn't about them as a couple. You know, there was one point person within the couple that was struggling with something internally. And basically, she was just the roadkill along the highway. You know, it isn't like we need help. It's I have to have him do this so that we can work. But I don't think it's necessarily like relationship counseling. I personally think he should have his own person to speak to. But the cool thing is if you go together, a good therapist will recognize it and they'll privately call him or tell him like, hey, listen, you know, I think you could benefit from seeing me or if that's too much of a conflict of interest because I see you both, I have somebody really great for you to speak to personally. A good therapist will recognize where the pain point is yeah, and who to focus on. You know, I, I can hear your sadness. Remember, this is opportunity. This is opportunity for growth for him and you, right? You know, when when we leave a relationship, it's not because we don't love that person, Yeah, but it's not love if we aren't lovable with ourselves when we're in it. It's just, it's game over. So try to do your best to get them there, make it fun, make it an opportunity and hold your ground. Yeah. So maybe he would be open to this if you demand it. Yeah. I think it's just going to take some work. I, I know like the last thing he wants is to like lose me. Like I know he loves me very much, but yeah. Just don't forget about you. Like April said, don't lose yourself unless there's adjustments in his life. You're independent of that behavior. In my experience, at least with making the only comparison that I know of, 
I love you and I think you're beautiful and amazing and I can't thank you enough for your vulnerability and you're really wise to like look after yourself, Yeah, you know? And I think that's what it is, Anna, is that you are so wise and you're so smart and you have such courage and heart and we're talking because you know this is true. Right. So we recognize this is not easy. So please don't think that we don't honor how difficult of a position this is for you. But the three of us sitting here talking, this is so important that as women that we always maintain our core of who we are. A lot of times we are the leader in the communication. We're the leader in the relationship, in the heart space. Sometimes, not always, but you're just going to step into your power. You're going to step into your leadership as a woman. And I think that's really encouraging. And we have faith in you that you can do that. Truly, I know that you feel like you have these two decisions, stay or go. Yeah. And you don't have to look at it like that right now at all. I don't think you should put that pressure on yourself because you can't help but your brain goes to the logistics of like, what do we do with the dogs? Like my life is here. My life is in this house. I've invested in it. And if you can, don't let your mind race around those ideas yet. Maybe use like the next few months to assess, take the steps toward making the relationship work while you figure out what you want. It's all going to be okay. I really appreciate y'all's insight and listening and talking to me in spite of it being just some really heavy things. And I'm really going to be adamant about therapy to make sure we can at least do what we can that's in our power to make things better. Good. Think about it as you're coming from love. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So breathe, take a nice deep breath in. We're surrounding you with so much love. And even if we're not going to be talking to you, we're thinking of you and we believe in you and you're courageous and smart and full of heart. So you can do this and release it too. Well, thank you both so much. You're welcome. You guys are amazing. I'm very thankful for what you guys do. Take care. You too. Bye guys. Bye. 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 